Welcome, everybody. I'm Brennan, and I'm a part of HealthCast, a podcast brought to you straight out of Emory that takes a unique approach in helping students live healthy lifestyles while engaging and educating them in biological concepts. Today, I'll be talking about mental health as it relates to stress, social media, what you eat, how you exercise, and even more. I'll be talking with several guests today, but for context and elaboration, I'll discuss some relevant topics on my own as well. Today, our first guest will be Dr. Jang. He's a PhD neuroscientist from right here at Emory University. When he finished his studies, he decided to take a different path from many of his peers, dipping into the business use of science. He developed a drink, which is called Nerved, and is designed to relieve stress. It's been picked up by CVS and will launch across the nation very soon. I talked to him about the stress pathways in our brain and several other things. your background um what did you study and and how did that kind of i guess uh, influence your decision to make this product so i started studying neuroscience in undergrad Uh, that was my undergraduate uh, major and i just graduated a couple years ago with my doctorate uh so all up i've been studying neuroscience for a little over a decade um spanning sort of kind of a wide breadth of topics, uh, including uh, behavior and um, disease models and gene therapy. And uh, it's a very different thing to study uh, anxiety-like or stress-like behaviors in, in animal models compared to humans. Um, But, the, but a lot of the mechanisms within the brain are very similar. And so I really took uh, my approach to this problem was primarily from uh, a scientific angle of how do we fix the problem inside the brain? How do we, what is the neurochemistry that's involved here that we could solve for people? Um, and that's why the solution ended up being just that, a drink, right? Something that we could use Um, that would have a psychoactive effect and get into the brain and the CNS to have the kind of function that we want. Um, A lot of of psychoactive drugs are very nonspecific. Take alcohol to be a very common one. Um, Alcohol acts as a depressant on uh, pretty much all of the brain. It's very non-selective, and so that's why it has a lot of effects like drunkenness or motor coordination and you know behavioral changes and, and personality change. Um, but but since we since the stress and anxiety circuitry is so well understood, we have compounds that sort of specifically target just those circuits, and in that sense, we can create solutions that are more tailored for one particular use case. And in this case, it's stress at the management of stress and anxiety um, without affecting the kind of circuits that regulate wakefulness or alertness or personality. Um, and to me, that was the kind of product that I wanted to find and use because, you know, I don't want, if I'm, you know, going into a work meeting or um, speaking in front of an audience, I want to be myself. Right. right. I don't want to become somebody else, um, and I just want to be myself without the fear or the anxiety of of the situation. And and more often than not, a lot of those fears are sort of unfounded in that 
you know, it, it, what feels like a life-threatening situation uh, is generally not in, in modern society, right? And so, and so, you know, I would love to sort of be able to address that problem from a neurochemical point of view um, in a very specific manner. And that's why, uh, that's the sort of reasoning and, and, and logic behind the formulation of NERV was how to address that specific problem. Um, and so I, I thought about a lot of the other, you know, compounds uh, that you mentioned or just generally that we use um, for treating stress, um, as you say, are unspecific, but but also um, maybe just due to the stigma, we haven't we haven't created you know much in this in this field as much as maybe a stimulants. But a lot of them, I guess, like you would say, alcohol or um, maybe something prescribed like Valium. Though those are, uh, as you say, quite addictive and um, and can be uh, tough to work with um, because of that. So. Was that a hard thing to get around, looking for um, compounds that, that wouldn't necessarily addict people, or uh, you know, are there any downsides to nerves now that you've uh, finalized the product? Sure, so, so addiction is a major problem, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it goes both ways in that a lot of times um, uh, addiction can come about as a result of dependence on an effect, um, and it may also uh, you're more likely to be addicted if you're in a stressed state, right? And so in the case of a lot of pharmaceuticals, uh, the design of those products isn't to harm people, right. right? It isn't to addict people. It isn't to, you know, the, the design is to treat an acute problem. Um, and in doing so, the, the compounds that are used typically tend to be very uh, strong in their effects because they need to be. Right. Uh, by the time someone is looking to get a prescription for chronic stress or anxiety, it's usually a pretty big problem, mm -hmm. right? Um, and and therefore you would need a solution that is sort of as strong to meet it and and, and to meet that uh, problem. Um, and the stronger these compounds are, or the stronger their psychoactive effects, um, uh, the more you have to deal with. Uh, side effects and dependence and addiction and things like this and to me that was highly unsatisfactory because again a lot of the stress that I was experiencing was circumstantial right it was giving a talk or going out on a Friday night and and I certainly didn't want to go get a prescription for for occasional stress mm. right um, and so what I wanted was I wanted something uh, of a pick-me-up but like for stress instead of energy and and that's what you mostly find over the counter is if you didn't get a good night's sleep you 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 would go drink a coca-cola or a tea or a or five-hour energy or you know energy drink um, and that was great because that was all you needed you didn't need to go get a prescription for a pharmaceutical strength stimulant right um, and, and my question was, well, why didn't we have that for all of these stressful situations, right? And so to create a weaker um, relaxant that would be available over the counter uh, was advantageous for that specific use case, but it also comes with the advantages of not having to be as strong as a lot of the pharmaceutical compounds. And you know, the main concern stemming out of the strength there is addiction, right? right? 
Um, and so creating nerve, you know, we didn't want the compound to, we didn't want the product to be addictive. We wanted it to be a solution that people could enjoy over the long term when they needed it. Um, one of the downsides, I will say, is that you can build a tolerance to nerve. But that's true of just about any psychoactive compound, including caffeine. Right? If you drink coffee every day, it'll slowly lose its effect. And the same is true of nerve. Um, if you use it too often, you'll begin to lose its effects. It'll begin to lose its effect because your brain can adjust and become plastic to the effect of nerve as well. And so it's most effective used as an occasional uh, solution for the management of stress and anxiety. And what happens to a person with chronic stress? Sure, so your body undergoes a lot of physiological reactions to acute stress, and for good reason, because stress is designed, or, or its function is to help us survive. If uh, you're met with deadlines or, or physical threats, you, you want your body to respond in a way that'll help you address that problem, and, and, and often that can happen in unexpected ways. Um, so for you know some of the more common experiences might be a racing heart um, to increase blood flow uh, so that we can uh, we have fast for a faster action our muscles are ready right um, and that's generally response to a physical threat now a lot of people today experience these same mechanisms but in response to a wide variety of stressors that aren't necessarily physical right it may be um, it may be something uh, like a deadline or um, getting somewhere on time or thinking about planning an event. And so when we're constantly having these physical reactions to stress, um, what your body is experiencing is, is, is a sort of a heightened state of being alert and ready to action when it when it doesn't necessarily need to be in that state. Um, and while in the acute phase, a lot of that reactive uh, physiology is good, when it persists over a long term, maybe every day, uh, maybe for months on end, um, what can happen to your body is it can shift the sort of set point at which, at which your body thinks is normal. Mm. So instead of uh, regular, you know, being relaxed uh, and being being yourself as a normal state. Now your body interprets the set point of your physiology to be a stressful state, right? And when you're in that state for a long time, the, some of the functions that your body sacrifices to be alert like that may be your health, right? If there's a tiger in the room, your immune system might not be so important as activating your muscles because you need to get out of there. Right? But if that's how it, that's your body's experience every day for months on end, you might end up being sick more often. Right? Um, elevated blood pressure might lead to heart disease. And so, and so there are a number of reasons why chronic stress leads to sort of these maladaptive physical responses that in the acute phase are great and would help you survive, but if they're chronically active um, many times over a long period of time, that ultimately can shift our bodies into a state that is less healthy. Sure. And so I guess the whole idea of nerve is, is just kind of break that momentum of being chronically stressed. What kind of compounds, like what are they uh, acting on in, in your brain that, that's uh, calming down the chronic stress? Sure. So the way that stress and anxiety work in the brain is that they stem from a brain structure called the amygdala. 
the amygdala is mostly thought of as uh, the emotional regulatory system in the brain. And something that it's responsible for is the learning and regulation of fear. Oftentimes people don't think of anxiety as fear, but it is in fact a type of fear. It's a fear of the future. So when you anticipate something scary happening, uh, such as a deadline or uh, meeting a new person or uh, giving a public speech, when you anticipate something like that happening, your brain goes into a mode of fear for that event. And that's what precipitates as this emotion of anxiety. And fear activates sort of our bodies in, the very, in very similar ways to acute stress in that when we feel anxious, um, we can also experience a fluttering heart, uh, sort of racing thoughts, inability to sleep. Um, and, and the activation of that pathway chronically can make us sensitive to stress and anxiety such that previously unstressful or things that normally do not give us anxiety will now trigger that response even though it shouldn't. And that's when you've got sort of chronic problems uh, arising from people who say that you know, I'm, I've become so sensitized to anxiety that I can't even leave the house anymore. Or, you know, I cancel all my appointments because I, I can't bring myself to meet people or something like this. Um, and, that, and that's because that mechanism has suddenly shifted from its base set point to a new set point or a new uh, sensitivity to activation as a result of chronic use. If we're able to lower the activity of those brain fear circuitry, uh, of the brain fear circuits in the amygdala, or block them in some way, then we can deactivate the stress response. And, in, and that's the mechanism of the compounds and nerve, is that they directly act as an off switch for the amygdala to turn off those hyperactive neurons in the case of chronic or acute stress or anxiety. Okay. Uh, cool. Well, that's all of my main questions, um, but I'm sure people are curious, uh, where will they be able to find this product and when will it be uh, rolled out? So uh, we're talking in March of 2019. Cool. Um, we just signed our first major uh, retail distribution deal with CVS, and uh, Nerve will be able to be found on every other CVS uh, pharmacy that you visit. Uh, about one in two stores uh, in the coming couple of months. So by the first half of 2019, you should be able to find it at your local CVS, uh, but it's also online on Amazon and at getnerve.com, which is our website. Yeah, well, uh, very good. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you. Our next guest is Dr. Treadway. He's a psychologist and neuroscientist here at Emory who focuses on the understanding and the mechanisms of mood, anxiety, and decision-making. He received his PhD in clinical psychology from Vanderbilt University in 2012 and completed his clinical internship and postdoc at McLean Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He's a director of an affective disorders laboratory here at Emory, and I talked with him about inflammation, the microbiome, and the sense of control as they relate to depression.
So for the contingency of people who are maybe more dismissive of mental illness, you often hear as a remedy for depression, maybe just uh, sleep or eat, exercise better. Um, and this obviously isn't going to work for everyone, but do we have evidence this works for, say, someone who's having self-esteem issues as a root of their depression? Well, it, it depends on really what you mean by work. Um, there are really two parts of that question. So one is, what do you mean by work? Uh, for just about everyone, uh, action and engagement in their world through exercise, going out, doing things is going to help depression to at least some extent. Sure. Um, in, uh, put another way, not doing any of those things, being inactive, isolating, staying by yourself is a recipe for depression to worsen. Mm. So, but then the question is, is that, and, and where I think you're getting at, uh, is, is something like that sufficient uh, to make depression significantly better? In a, in a meaningful way and really alleviate the psychic pain that we're targeting and, and trying to treat with depression. And I would say there the answer is no. Um, that even when those things really do work for people, it's not exercise that's working. It's that depression is, in a most general sense, a disorder of being stuck in a kind of hopeless, pessimistic state. And when you uh, are out and about in the world, you have lots of opportunities, potentially, to recognize that the world is not as bad as you imagine. Mm. The world's not as bad, you're not as bad, and the future isn't as bleak. And if you're open to learning from those experiences, that is what can really change depression. Okay. Sometimes it's sufficient just to get out there. Sometimes you really need uh, the support of friends, therapist, family, all of the above, to help you not just be out there, but to see uh, the positives in the world around you when you are out there. Hmm. A lot of people with depression struggle with recognizing uh, positive things when they happen, hmm. or they have a strong tendency to uh, shift the locus of control or, or responsibility based on whether something's positive or negative, right. i.e. if something positive happened, it was a fluke. It was by chance or something negative happened, that was because of me, right. it's my fault. So I think that while it's true that things like exercise, diet can be helpful uh, for just about anyone they are rarely sufficient for mm. meaningful change okay cool um another question i had is um we actually talked about uh microbiomes in our gut in mm -hmm. uh to do with um i guess having a bigger role um we talked about in our biology class about having a bigger role than uh, we previously thought perhaps you know influencing maybe even like some of our our mm -hmm. brain processes um in particular, one article I read um, was that potentially a lack of diversity in food as a young child could lead to um, anxiety, depression in life. And, and I was wondering, you know, is this something that uh, is this like a very new phenomenon that the psychological community hasn't necessarily like done a lot of research into yet? Or, or you know, where, where do we stand on that type of thing? Um, 
So there was a paper that came out in Science about a month ago that I think was the first report showing mm. association between the microbiome and depressive symptoms. Um, I think it's intriguing. The microbiome is relatively new. I mean, sure. within the past, past 10, 12 years that it's really been actively researched. And no, it hasn't gotten a ton of attention in the psychiatric community. I think a lot of studies have started up, but the results aren't out yet. Mm. Um, and there's all, there was also uh, another paper, I think also in science showing that, um, microbiome, but the, the, first of all, the enteric nervous systems, putting aside the microbiome for sure. a sec, but the enteric nervous system has a lot more direct influence over what happens in the central nervous system than was previously thought. Mm -hmm. That sets up a mechanism by which the microbiome could easily influence the brain. Uh, and so there was, there is some evidence that key neurotransmitters we know are implicated in depression, like dopamine, are actually heavily influenced by the actions of the enteric nervous system. So could, in principle, also be affected by, you know, gut microbiota. Uh, but I don't think any clear, strong causal links have been established. Okay. Interesting. Um, also, in our class, we talked about uh, inflammation um, and its linkage to depression, and that's, I guess, another pretty recent development. Um, and so, you know, we kind of talked about, I guess, the vulnerability. People have the certain people have vulnerability with the, their blood brain barrier, um, you know, tears uh, with, I guess, cytokines that, that would uh, influence uh, and block their dopamine reception. But um, Inflammation is often talked about, I guess, in more, like, I guess, pop culture as, as a relation to, like, your diet and, and in consumption with foods like, I guess, sugar. Is, is that the same type of inflammation we're talking about, or is that completely unrelated? No, it is related. And the, the link with diet and inflammation is really due to adipose tissue. So mm -hmm. adipose tissue is fat, fat cells, mm -hmm. and when uh, someone... Uh, becomes overweight or significantly overweight, they develop a lot of adipose tissue, and adipose tissue tends to release a lot of inflammatory cytokines. Mm -hmm. So it is a source of inflammation. Mm -hmm. Inflammation is heavily correlated uh, around 0.5 or higher in most samples with BMI. Mm -hmm. So a higher BMI, you have more inflammation. So yes, that is a potential source. It's not the only source. It's not to say that you can't have chronic inflammation. Right if you are skinny, um, but, uh, but it is one real source that may explain some of the significant comorbidity between things like obesity and depression. Sure. So I guess for people with, um, we talked about also that like dopamine doesn't play into everyone's depression though. So Correct. like, I guess for that to be a factor, you'd have to have someone that's vulnerable to begin with. Correct. Okay. okay. Correct. And there are plenty of people walking around with inflammatory markers through the roof and they're totally fine, yeah. totally happy, right. you know. So yes, well said. Okay, cool. Um, and lastly, there's I noticed a big narrative um, linking social media um, and the, I guess, raise in depression and anxiety that we've seen in the last decade or so. Um, are there a lot of studies that agree with this, or is this something that's more, I guess, a good narrative-sounding type thing? Mm -hmm. Um, it's certainly a very plausible hypothesis, and I should say at the outset, I don't know this literature mm -hmm. terribly well. Sure. Um, 
I and and I think you know social media isn't one causal factor. There are likely different factors that are all under that umbrella. So online bullying, um, or people who are sort of victim uh, victims of online harassment, uh, particularly school age kids, that could be a real source. It's not so much a new source. I mean, being bullied has been a risk factor for depression for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but technology is a multiplier. It increases the often the potency and accessibility of things, bullying included. And so in that sense, it could be seen as an agent of sort of turning up the volume on a, a known risk factor like bullying. Now, there's there have been other ideas floated out there that are really new to social media, like uh, social comparison. Mm, right, right. Um, that suddenly your comparison set is uh, significantly more expanded. You know, you're in a, say, you know, a shy kid in a small, you know, high school of 400, and that's kind of your world. Okay, that may be manageable, Mm -hmm. but suddenly you're in the online world and you're comparing yourself to sort of everyone, um, and that may be new. I don't know of the strength of the evidence around things like that or that sort of social comparison or, you know, people also have ideas of just, you know, that are a little more vague, like screens are bad or it stunts your development. Mm -hmm. All these things are proposed and may be plausible, but the, the clear mechanisms of how that would happen are often not well defined. Sure. Okay. Um, well, thanks. That's all my questions. <laughs> cool. So while these interviews have been very insightful, you may have noticed a lot of the things we talk about aren't solidly proven yet, but I think there is value in this. By looking at the fringes and new areas of study, we've been able to identify areas that most podcasts about health wouldn't talk about. But as a caveat to this, these issues that we've talked about aren't as comprehensive, and most of the things you know about maintaining good mental health still remain true. I just wanted to take a quick time to talk about social media, because Dr. Treadway very fairly admitted that uh, he was an expert in the topic. Social networking sites have rapidly developed in the last 10 years. And while the link to poor mental health hasn't necessarily been proven, um, there has been plenty of speculation. The one thing we do know currently is that social media has changed several uh, things in the way we interact with people, with more time spent communicating non-verbally, non-facially, and text being used in greater amounts, for example. And to expand what Dr. Treadway said about social comparison, according to a research paper published by the U.S. National Library of Medicine, National Institutes of Health, one of the reasons why time spent on social networking sites may uh, lead to depressive symptoms is the wrong impressions of the physical and personality traits of online friends. This could include incorrect conclusions regarding physical appearance, education level, intelligence, moral integrity, and more. And basically, you know, compares, comparing yourself unfavorably to the version of someone that they've presented themselves online. This would obviously most directly affect self-esteem, which can play a big role in depression. There's also evidence that social media can create a loop Um, which may occur where people with self-esteem use social media more often. And social networks have also been uh, linked to addiction, which as a result can have neglect in other aspects of their social life, like family and offline friends. 
Some studies have even drawn a, con a correlation with uh, heavy social media users resembling symptoms seen during drug, alcohol, uh, nicotine addiction, and withdrawal. So while we haven't figured it all out, in the years to come, the extensive research and conclusions that will come from this subject will, in my opinion, have the potential for a substantial impact on the future organization of the mental health system and social networking. And so with that, I thank you all for listening. This has been episode one of HealthCast. It's been a pleasure being your host on today's podcast, but I couldn't have done anything without my team. That is Tamar, Canubria, and Jillian. They all helped put this together, and uh, it's been a great process. Special thanks goes out to Dr. Ryder for helping us keep on track and giving us advice along the way. And of course, thanks again to our guests, Dr. Jang and Dr. Treadway. I'll see you guys next episode for a discussion of nutrition hosted by our very own Tamar City.